Thanks for leading us this morning. Uh, just by, uh, just a thought that comes to my mind here. I was talking with uh, Leroy Gross before the service started, and he was just asking me how I was doing, and, and, and I'm thinking about what was said at the top of the service about how we are in our 80th year. And I say, I'll tell you how I'm doing. I'm doing well because I, as pastor here at Bethesda Church, am, am standing on 80 years of consistency of men and women who have served Jesus Christ. And I think of many of you who I, I see out there, elders, former elders that have spent decades of your life serving. And it's because of you that we are stable in where we are now. And so we say thank you for that. And so uh, let's look at now God's word together. Turn to your Bible, if you would, to John 15, 1. It's where we're going to be. And I, I want to begin this way. I want to begin by uh, pointing something out that I have experienced, and I'm sure you have experienced if you have been a Christian more than just a few years, like more than three. If you remain a Christian long enough, one of the things that you'll find is that you'll inevitably be disappointed by those who you look up to, whether it's people whose books you've read, uh, Christian leaders that you've followed, Whoever runs that podcast or uh, whoever you listen to those, whoever sermons you listen to on, on that Apple podcast or Spotify, you should make sure that you listen to what happens in church first before that, but this for another time. Um, but think about those kinds of people. Inevitably, whether you get to know them personally or from a distance, you've experienced at some point or another disappointment because when you lift the hood on some of these people's lives, you see that their character does not match the message that they've been preaching. And so you've heard of evangelical leaders having scandals, or uh, maybe you've seen someone who's preached one message and then they go and blow up their marriage through infidelity, or well, you realize that they have uh, abuse in how they run things, abusive behavior, deception, all of those kinds of things. And I was thinking about how I've been on the receiving end of this, and I've experienced this in my own way. And I was talking with Pastor Anthony about that actually this week. And I said, here's how that's actually so disorienting um, for those who are on the receiving end of it. It's because you have found yourself listening to certain Christian leaders, and then you begin to build up your belief system based on what they have told you as a mediator of God's word. And so that system can end up being built up, worldview, whatever you want to call it, and then you realize this person is actually they're not who they said they were behind the scenes. And so when that comes out, you then pull out the brick to this house that you've built, and you go, well, is this brick as messed up as the person who gave me that message? You ever experienced that? And then you, you pull that out, and you go, if I pull this out and get rid of it, will the whole house of my belief system come crumbling down? It's very disorienting. They have to go through something like that. When I say that, I, there's definitely the thought, I'm sure, that comes to some of our minds that goes, well, Aaron, you have to differentiate between those who are, uh, those who are fallen men with clay feet versus the Lord Jesus Christ. And I get that. But what I also get is that many of the things that you and I believe come from the mediators who tell us about who Jesus is. And so you look at these people's lives and go, some who have ended in destruction and go, where did they get off? 
Like, no young man goes to seminary or goes to graduate school to become a pastor and then goes, you know what I want to do in 20 years? Uh, I, I want to I have an affair and blow up my marriage and blow up my church in the process. I want to make sure I schedule that for about 25 years from now. Nobody ever does stuff like that. But something happens incrementally where they end up drifting and they get off. The drift happens. And it's kind of like the analogy of the compass, where if you're a hair off when you start from your destination, you can end up being miles off by the time you should have reached that, that end point for moving from point A to point B. How did that drift happen? I believe that's not just something that those who are Christian leaders have dealt with. We know about them because they're in the public square. Their spotlight is on them. But this is true not just for those who are Christian leaders. You can look at evangelicals over the last five years and see how this has happened. This is something every single one of us has to deal with, that we would watch our own lives and watch ourselves from drifting so that we do not end up in shipwreck, but we get to the place that God has for us. I've mentioned to you a statement that I've heard from one of my professors, and that statement is essentially that we are called to hold tightly onto Jesus and everything else with a loose grip, right? Hold tightly to Jesus and everything else with a loose grip. And something happens when you don't hold it tightly to Jesus, you can find yourself drifting. And I don't want that for us. I want us to be people who hold tightly to Jesus, or another way you could say it would be that we remain attached to the vine, Jesus, for we are the branches who are called to bear much fruit. That's where we're going this morning, that we would watch our character as we're attached to the vine. Look at verse one with me. I'm gonna read this to you. Verse one says this. Actually, I have to say this before I go any further. I'm sorry, I gotta point this out. Um, Jesus has been given us in an, in so many words about what he's going to do, that he's leaving, and he's going to prepare a home for us. And then he says, I'm going to prepare also my home right in you too by giving you the Holy Spirit. And he also says, look, the devil has no claim on me. And if he has no claim on me, brother and sister, he has no claim on you. And so if that's true, don't forget the command I've been giving you this whole time. Love one another, love one another. And I love what Jesus is going to do here as I set this up. Jesus, I've noticed as I've been walking through this passage, maybe you've caught this, what he does is different than the way Paul speaks. I love Paul because he's linear. One, two, three. I can call, boom, 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 boom. He goes right down the line and I can follow him. And for me, because my mind, it just, I probably have some undiagnosed something where I'm all over the place. I've got to have that structure in my life. We, we went to a conference just a couple weeks ago uh, with Mark Gunger, if you've ever heard of Phil Gunger, and he's got that analogy where you have the wife in her mind over here and the husband in his mind over here, and the way men think are in boxes, have boxes. Everything goes in a box. Men also have a nothing box that nothing goes in there as well. You don't touch that nothing box. Women over here are like spaghetti. Their minds are all over the place. And after we got done with that conference, someone said, Aaron, how did you enjoy the conference? And I said, 
I enjoyed it because it helped me understand how men think because my mind doesn't work that way. And so that's why I need Paul because I'm, I'm, I'm like this. And he just goes bam, bam, bam down the line. But Jesus here, it's like he's playing notes to a song where every time he hits the chorus, he adds a few notes. Love one another, that's the message. But every time, it's, it's almost cyclical, it's like this. And he adds more. Let me show you how he adds more. Look at this, 15.1. Now we'll look at the passage. I am the vine, the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This concept of mutual indwelling, the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, and now we are in him. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. And they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We're gonna walk all the way through verse 17 today, but what I wanna do just right now is, is talk about this illustration that Jesus gives, and then later we'll look at the application for what this illustration is pointing to. And so this illustration has its four characters. It has the vine, the vine dresser or the farmer, and then two kinds of branches. So let's look at this. Imagine for just a moment you see a farmer and he comes up to a vine that he's been cultivating and he looks at the branches and he pulls up some of them and he, and he looks and sees that some don't have fruit on them and he looks at them and he goes, okay, well, they're good for nothing. So he rips them off and throws them into the fire. He then takes other branches and he notices that these branches are bearing good fruit. And so he does the work that any good vine dresser would do. He starts to pull off maybe some leaves on these fruit, uh, on these branches that are dying. And he begins to make certain cuts in certain places to make sure that he prunes the branch so that it would produce the fruit that it's supposed to produce. It may be painful, but in the end, it produces fruit. It's never, it is never something that is easy when God disciplines those whom he loves. But he does it because when he does that surgical procedure on our heart and he cuts out the cancer that is in us called sin, it is painful, but it's for our good so that we would produce much fruit. That's what he's getting at. And so we're already getting to the identity of these these four characters. Who's the vine dresser? The vine dresser is the father, right? It's verse one. Who is the vine in this situation? The vine is Jesus. And this is the seven of those, the seventh of what we call the I am statements in scripture. God who is Yahweh, 
Lord, the great I am from the burning bush in the book of Exodus. If you've been going through the reading plan that we have as a church, you've been looking at how God is delivering his people, the great I am. And now we're told that Jesus is identified with the I am, personified in the person of the Son. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Looked at a couple weeks ago that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now here, we're told he is the true vine. True vine. That's not just a throwaway statement. That means something. He is true. That is the one God who is truth. Truth isn't just a part of who he is. He is truth. And that is demonstrated through the person of the Son who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is demonstrated through the spirit of truth that we looked at last week, all from the one divine nature, subsisting in each of these persons. And so Jesus always is the truth because he is the creator of what is real. And what he says corresponds to reality. When you listen to him, he's never going to lead you astray. He's always going to say what is right. He is true, the truth. He's the vine, too. If you know your Old Testament, you know that Israel is associated with the vine, but it's always done in the context of God's judgment and rebuking his people. You read the book of Isaiah, you read Ezekiel, which are just brutal books, honestly. They're brutal because they point to God's judgment over a wicked people. I'm going to drop the hammer. I'm going to drop the hammer. And then he does. And you see that in these books. And Israel is uprooted and thrown into the fire. That's the analogy that we get over and over and over again. And yet Jesus, by being called the true vine, he is everything that Israel should have been. He is faithful when they are not. He is obedient to the Father in his humanity when they were not. He is the better Israel encapsulated in one person. That's, that's what we have going on here, the true vine. You go, okay, what about the branches? Well, you and I are the branches. Verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nada, nothing. And that's the key right here, that you cannot be productive. You cannot be what we have up on the screen. Look at that statement. Good fruit is produced by true branches that remain to the true vine. You, you can't produce good fruit unless you are connected to Jesus, the vine. You must remain in him. We prayed it a moment ago. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Jesus is the source of all that is good. And worthless branches are those who don't get their source of what is good from the sun. And they are those people who may have grown up in church, but they ended up drifting. They may have been those people who said they would be one thing, a Christian leader or whatever, whatever, and then their message at some point ends up separating from who they are in their character. And Jesus says, those who don't remain in the true vine, verse 6, are those who are thrown into the fire and burned. And your mind 
can immediately go. It does, it's not a stretch of the imagination to see what he's talking about. If you are not attached to the true vine at the end of this life, you are separated from him for eternity in judgment. This is what God's word gives us. A lot is at stake here, friends, in what God gives. He says, you remain in the vine. Your life depends on it. Like the sake of your marriage depends on that. The sake of your well-being of your kids, parent, depends on you remaining true to the vine. Your relationships will not be, will not be blessed through Christian love if you don't get your source of love that comes from the Father through the Son. Much is at stake here. And Jesus says, let me define what it means to remain in me further. It's that my word is in you. My word is in you. It remains in you. And so I would just ask you this. When you look at your life just the last week, would you be able to say that God's word drove everything that you did? That you were able to, to have the thoughts of God because you have the commandments of God on your tongue, that you're able to be like that Psalm 1 kind of person. You've been meditating on the, uh, the law of the Lord day and night. He is like a tree that does not wither because he is grounded in God's word. How are we living? Does God's word remain in us? And then the last thing here he gives us, he says in verse 8, he tells us that the result of producing this good fruit is that his father is glorified. And I love that because you expect him maybe to say that he is glorified, the son. But when you understand that the source of everything comes from the father through the son by the spirit, the father who is unbegotten sends the son who is eternally begotten and then he breathes life into us the Holy Spirit, from the Father through the Son. Man, you see that every time you act in obedience to what God has for you, you are fulfilling a work that began from the Father and has made it way, its way in a Trinitarian way down into your life. That's what's happening here. And so good fruit is produced by true branches who remain in the true vine. If I were to not listen to your words, but I was to look at your behavior, what kind of branch would I be able to see if I just looked at you? Would I see you as the branch that the vine dresser has just thrown to the side because it's separated from the vine and worthless? Or does your actions tell me that you are attached to the vine and, and you got to hold tightly to Jesus and everything else with a loose grip, or you're dead, man. you got to have him. Is that, is that what your life would say? Is your life saying that you're holding tightly to Jesus or is it telling me when I look at your actions or anybody else looks at your actions that because of your anxiety and your anger, you are clutching onto your pearls, not pearls that lead to the kingdom of heaven, but pearls that lead to your own kingdom trying to be built? That's the question this morning. What kind of branch are you? That's the illustration. But then Jesus puts meat on the bones, and he gives us what the Christian life looks like that remains true to him. Look with me at verse 9 now. Verse 9. Jesus then says, he goes, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. 
This is my commandment, that you love one another, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then we get that famous verse. Greater love has no one than this, than someone who lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you my servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me. I chose you, and I appointed you so that you would go bear much fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then Jesus ends, and he says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. I'd encourage you sometime, go back and just read John 14 through 17 all the way through, underline every time it says love one another. You may notice it comes up a few times, right? Love one another. And so if Jesus is the true vine, we're called to be attached to him and get everything that we, that we need for life to love God and love neighbor. What does that actually look like? I'm going to give you five statements. We're just going to walk through these statements together that I think encapsulates everything he's saying. Here we go. One, we remain in Christ's love through utter, total obedience, just as Jesus did to his own father. He's the example as Christ has obeyed the Father. And the result when we do that is that Christ has joy and we have joy. That's what happens, okay? You notice that word that we've been hitting at over and over. What's the word that's probably talked about the most here? That word, abide, in my ESV. Maybe in your Bible it says remain. We'll use the word remain because that's familiar to us. That comes up 10 times in these verses. Edward Klink, um, I love that last name, Klink. Um, he is a scholar uh, on the Gospel of John, and he describes what this word remain means. i read this to you. He says, it is to be aware of our dependence and insufficiency. I love that. It's to be aware of our dependence and insufficiency, which is a state that the world try to reverse and deny. This commandment to remain is not a burden, but a gift an opportunity to really live and ironically to truly be free is to have life as it was designed in harmony with the creator. To remain then is to exist in the grace and love of God. Or if I could give you the Aaron Garza paraphrase, to remain in Jesus is to admit that you are not enough by yourself. You are not enough alone, but it is to acknowledge that you are enough in Christ Jesus alone. When you get to that point where you finally go, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it by myself anymore. And you remain in him, that's, that's what we're talking about here. And so I would ask you, and I put this question because I know what several of us are going through. I'm not just a preacher, my desire is to be a pastor. And I know that some of you are going through, through some serious things. And I would ask you, would you be able to say that you have had enough of doing it your own way and you've given it up to him? If not, maybe, maybe you have in certain places, but not entirely. Where is Jesus calling you this morning to go, oh, I need to be dependent more on him. I need to remain in him. I need to give this to him. Do that. It's always the right time to do that today. And you notice that what he does is he brings that chain together once again between obedience on the one hand 
and the love of God on the other. He says, you can't claim to be a lover of God if you're not someone who obeys God. To love God is not like a mere abstraction here. Like, please don't, just because Valentine's Day is coming up in, in a little bit, don't let your mind go Cupid here when I talk about the love of God. By the way, that's a subtle mention, gentlemen. I'm just trying to help you make your reservations, do what you need to do, okay? Don't do that. Don't, don't mess it up here. Understand that the kind of love that's being talked about here is the love of a father to his children. It's paternal. That's what we have here. And so Jesus is making an unbreaking chain between love and obedience. And he says, you true children of God are those who obey the father because he has given him their love and they receive his love. You can't say you love God and don't obey his commandments. It's that straightforward. Or trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And I've never found, I've never found myself obeying Jesus and then afterwards going, I wish I hadn't done that. I usually find myself going, I should have done that sooner. And so when's the right time to obey? It's always right now. And the destination we're told is that it leads to joy. The end result of this is it leads to your joy. And so total obedience, that's what we're called to. And then we're called to follow the example of Christ. And that leads to our second point here. Second, we remain in Christ by following his obedient example to the Father. Sacrificial example to the Father. Jesus says in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. And further down we get that, that chief demonstration of his obedience in his humanity to the Father. And that's when he says, Greater love has no one than this, than he who lays down his life. For his friends. There's no greater example of love than to give up the most important gift you've ever received, your own life. There's something final to it, absolutes. You can't go back when you do it. It's the kind of love that, that hits you the first time you hold your, if God has blessed you with children, a newborn, your newborn in your hands, and you go, I would do anything for this little alien that I'm holding right now. Or, or when you get married and you look at your bride and you go, all of a sudden, it's not just about me anymore. It's about the other. And so there is a sacrificial love that you would do anything to protect your spouse for them, anything for them. And it's the sacrificial love that Jesus has towards his friends, that he looks at them and he knows that the only way that they can be saved is if he gets up on a Roman cross for them. And so he takes on their sin on a cross and he pays all of it by drinking the wrath of God all the way to the dregs. And since I'm, I'm already on it here for, for hymns, here's another one. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow, right? That's sacrificial love in a song. And so Jesus tells us that he is the model to follow for sacrificial love. You cannot say, I believe in God, but then not take up your cross and follow him. In fact, I would say if your obedience doesn't cost you anything, if your obedience doesn't cost you anything, your faith may be convenient, but it may also be counterfeit. It may not really be faith, because faith leads to following Jesus. Third. Remaining in Christ gives us the strength 
to love each other with the love that Christ has given us. Everything we've said so far, friends, has been vertical between us and God. And now Jesus gets horizontal. And he says, I want you to think about how when you have the love that comes from the Father, how that should impact how you love one another. Love one another with the same divine love between Father and Son. On Friday, uh, we finally got the chance to go to the Magnus sail barn. And Augie had been sorely disappointed because the week before we had planned to go out there. And as I'm pulling out, I had called Matt and I go, hey, are you guys doing a sail today? And he said, no. And then my, my almost three-year-old cried for the next hour. And so we decided we'd check in again this Friday. We had a green light. And so we, we went ahead and went. And Augie was thrilled. And so we get there and uh, Matt Magnus, one of our elders who just uh, prayed for us and, and talked at the beginning of the service, he's doing his thing. And I could try to describe to you what he did. Um, but remember, yeah, go ahead and watch it. Yeah, go ahead and play it. Here it is. Turn up for us a little bit. Isn't that impressive? <laughs> so, few, few thoughts here. Um, first, I had no idea what he was saying, but it was awesome. That's the first thought. Um, uh, second thought came to my mind was like, if Matt um, prayed the way he does that, uh, gentlemen, I am convinced that you would be more obedient uh, to 1 Timothy 2.8 to lift holy hands um, in worship. If not for excitement, then uh, at the very least because you think you're bidding for something, right? And so, no, it, it was just incredible. But what I was going to say right before the video, and I'll say it now, is it hit me in this way because that's the first time I had ever seen that. I know there's a number of you, that's, that, this is like very familiar, um, and for me as the city guy, I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there and I'm going, I have, th this is such a different culture. This is so new. Um, and, and it was exciting. I got a thrill out of it. And Jesse asked me earlier, did you, did you buy anything? I'm like, almost, I'm just feeling the need to, right? I don't know what I would do, but I would. Um, and then making that contrast between what I experienced, that's a whole culture right there. And then thinking about the cultures that I've come from, it, it then began to make me think of the people that I got to meet with this week. I, I got to meet, by the way, when we say, hey, fill out an orange card if you're a guest, people actually do that. And so I got to meet with five different people this week, and, and a few of them came forward for membership. Uh, one came forward uh, for baptism. You know who you are, so I've now called you out in front of everybody. Um, get baptized. And I just thought about this, and I went, each of these people come from different walks of life, different cultures. Uh, some who are from cities now here like me. Uh, others who come from, from, from Puerto Rico, right? And, and have a totally different background. Um, others who grew up on the farm, so all that was familiar. Uh, some who I talked to this week came from a different church background. And so um, 
some have Lutheran backgrounds. I come from a Baptist background, and we're all a part of now this Mennonite Brethren Church. What is Mennonite means? That's for another time. And you know, we're all together here. And I just go, it's so many, so many different kinds of people represented in one room. You go, why do you bring all this up, Aaron? Glad you asked. Um, from every conversation I've heard from these people and from others, I hear the reputation that Bethesda is a welcoming church. I feel welcomed when I come. But I would ask you, if we could go further, is there enough evidence to accuse us of being a loving church? Because that's two different things. Hi, come on in. Loving is far deeper than that. And when I first got here, I talked to a guy who used to go to church here, and he talked about how he was not he was not from the area, but he started coming here. And he said, keep this in mind. My extended family is around here. And I will tell you, there's a lot of families here, extended families here at Bethesda. And yet I just felt like I could never really penetrate into that. I felt myself just being, feeling really alone. I felt welcomed, but I didn't feel like I had really gotten plugged in. And I tried. I wonder if I really belong. That's what he said. And I've thought of those words. I've held on to those words for about six months. And I can tell you, that hasn't been my experience, but my experience is the weird experience. I'm the pastor, so it's just going to be different than everybody else, right? You've invited me in, and I've appreciated that. But I would ask you, if you've been here for more than a handful of years, if you've been established here, your family, maybe grandma's here, maybe your brothers are here, siblings, all of that, could you say that you really love others, not just your family, in the church sacrificially? That's my question for you. Maybe say, sure, I'll die for Jesus. Ah, but will you take someone you don't know to lunch afterwards, right? Uh, I'll go to the ends of the earth for Jesus. But would you be willing to invest in some of our young people here? Right? Maybe we're not so courageous after all. Maybe we're more like, we're more like Peter. And so I just want to offer a couple of things. I want to speak to two different kinds of groups here, just briefly. First, I want to speak to families, to mom and dad. Uh, the last six months have taught me that uh, we, we need Jared and Angie fast, mar uh, not marriage class, parenting class, because we have a lot of room to grow in our own parenting. For us, we had our firstborn, and it was a piece of cake because it was in the middle of a pandemic in California. And so we got to spend several months at home sheltering in place, and it was a dream. Everybody else was miserable. We had a great time, y'all. And so we got to have those precious moments that you just can't repeat. And then we had our second born and realized that all of that we had just experienced, that wasn't real life. And now we have our second born and we're looking at some of you who have like five, six more kids and go, how in the world do y'all do that? That's incredible. It's so impressive. And it just reminds us of how much room we have to grow. And so I know in saying this, just speaking to families, how much weight you have to carry. There's a number of you who are single parents. I just really feel for you. And, and what you navigate on a regular basis that nobody else sees. And so my desire in speaking is not so that you would feel like a noose is being tied around your neck and I'm putting up a bar that you would never be able to achieve. Let me put it this way. I want to remind you that your love of neighbor begins in your own home. It begins with your kids. 
Who is the primary person who's responsible for discipling your kids? It's not Anthony. It's not our teachers on Sunday morning. They're there to help you. The people who are primarily responsible for the discipleship of your kids is you, mom and dad. You are the one who is responsible. It's your job, and everybody else in the church is there to help, but it's your job. But you notice I said, it begins in the home, but it doesn't stay there. It doesn't end in the home, love of neighbor. It extends outward. For Justine and myself, it may begin at Nicholas Court, but it goes all the way to the tumble track. Uh, for, for you, it may begin in your home, but it extends out to JVC, the Huron schools, um, public schools here in town, Wolsey or wherever else. It begins in your home, but it doesn't stay there. And I would ask you to start thinking of your home as a place where it's a magnet that brings other people who may not know Christ, to bring them in in a way that you maybe never have before. To see, let others see what it looks like to have a gospel-centered home, gospel-centered marriage, gospel-centered parenting. And you're not going to get it perfect, but here's the truth. Most people have no clue what a Christian marriage looks like. I've shared with some of you that my, my mom and dad, my dad is not a Christian, so I didn't see that, 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 that Christian marital love growing up in the home. I had to go to Zambia on a mission trip when I was 17, 18 years old. And I'm there. We went from Lusaka, the airport, all the way to this little town called Nyimba in the middle of nowhere in the sticks. And that's where I first saw it. I saw, I remember, I remember the Helgrins. This couple. And they're jabbing each other as they're cleaning dishes. And they're laughing with one another. And you could see that there was, there was, a, there was a joy that they had in their marriage. And I remember going... That's it? I had no idea. That's it. And I watched them for a week and I went, it, it began to make me go, okay, that's, that's what it looks like. Consider, not that you have to do more activities or be a part of more programs, mom and dad, but invite people into what you're already doing and say, look at, look at our imperfectness that God is using through forgiveness and reconciliation and the joy that comes from the gospel in this mess that we call home. My prayer for you is that you would invite people in and let others see the God of redemption on display in your home. Let others see that you are attached to the vine as you are the branches. Second, empty nesters. You are uh, the friends in ministry I never knew I wanted, but I love that I have you. Um, it is amazing. Uh, empty nesters... Um, have two things that the rest of us don't have. Uh, they have time and they have wisdom. And so if, if you are, have been blessed to have kids, uh, they're grown. And so you have more time, in theory. Um, and you've also, wisdom, you've also paid the stupid tax on life. And so you know all the things not to do. And so you're there to help the rest of us. You're there to help the rest of us. And you can look at this problem and say, I see this problem and I know how to be the solution. And I would ask you, would you consider for a moment how much your church needs you? Like we are who we are because of so many who have served. And I would say, would you consider being a part of one of our ministry programs? For example, I couldn't think of another group um, that would need to know other wise people who have lived life and paid the stupid tax than more leaders to be involved with our Celebrate Recovery program. And that's something God prompts you on. I know that there's, there's one of you who's be, thought to become a member this week and said, hey, can I get involved in that? You go, yes, exactly. Talk to Dan after the service. 
Dan, raise your hand real quick. There's Dan. Okay. There's other ministry programs here. And I would ask you, consider how God may call you to serve. Maybe it's through deep investment in just a few people. Greg and Debbie Newhouse are close friends of Justine and Aaron. And I don't know where our marriage would be than if we hadn't met these people back in Arlington when we were in Texas. And they still continue to be good friends of us today. They, they've, they've, they've paid the stupid tax. And they have wisdom. And I am the beneficiary of that. So I would just say that to you. And I would ask that you would just not waste your retirement on what is frivolous, but that you would spend it on that which will have an eternal reward. That's my prayer for you. Four. We remain in Christ as his... Uh, yeah, there is. We remain in Christ as his friends, for he has revealed the Father to us, and he's chosen us to bear good fruit in him. Through Christ the Holy Spirit, through Christ the Holy Spirit has given us the mind of God. Paul elsewhere expounds on this, and he says, no, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. It's such an amazing thought to think that I don't have to ask God what he thinks about me. God, what do you think about me? I already know because I've got the book and I've got the Holy Spirit to make the, the recipe of the book come alive and to taste in my own life. And so the Spirit works through the Word so that we would know the mind of God. So you're not just a slave. Slave doesn't know what the master thinks. You're a friend of God. You know what he thinks because he's revealed himself to you. And he's not only revealed himself, he has chosen you for a purpose. And that purpose is that you would go and bear fruit. God the Father from the foundations of the earth has predestined you so that you would be adopted sons and daughters. And you are no longer a slave but a son given and daughter. Being given the ability to cry out, Abba, Father, and then get to work as he's called you to get to work. Election with a purpose. That's what we have here. And then lastly, by remaining in Christ, we focus our prayers on his agenda and not our own. If you only read verse 7, which says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you wish, do whatever you wish, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, you would go, well, okay, I can ask for anything frivolous here. But tie it in as Jesus adds more notes to the chorus in verse 16. And he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Friend, if you do not want to drift, you ought to be praying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Pray in the will of God. Maybe you should not be surprised that God has not been answering your prayers because you may not have been praying according to his own agenda. Make the Lord's prayer a part of your life and say, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when you pray, your will be done, and you reorient yourself, you will avoid shipwreck because he will not lead you astray. He will take you to the right place. And so my prayer for us is that we would, this week, whatever our circumstance, that we would watch the Spirit give us the strength because we are attached to the vine. And so friends, whether through your actions, how you pray, 
or whatever circumstance you find yourself in, in your home, whether you're an empty nester, whatever it is, my prayer is that we would walk out from here this morning and we would be able to say, I hold tightly to Jesus and everything else with a loose grip or he is the vine and I'm the branch. Lord, you are the source of life. Now use me. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.